up a little bit. Um, we're gonna go over apologetics, and this is our second look. Um, our, our second series, and for those of you guys backing up, uh, if you guys remember what we covered last week, just brief review. Apologetics means the defense of the Christian faith. Um, it's the issues, is the area of theology. Some could see it as a subdivision of theology, or some see it as a separate field itself that that deals with people having objection towards Christianity, or when people say, "How do you know Christianity is true?" Okay. Now, the kind of apologetics that I'm into is actually very driven by the Word of God. Okay, driven by the Word uh, Word of God, and uh, I also know um, that some of you guys. Um, so I want to say that I always feel when it comes to teaching apologetics, um, there's always those in the audience, there's, I'm thinking of the two extremes in our group uh, tonight. Some of you guys know a lot, okay? Know a lot about apologetics, you know? Um, and some of you guys, if this is the first time, like, whoa, this is um, different. So I'm always trying to uh, have in a way where it's in the middle that will be edifying for both. Um, and the kind of apologetics that I'm into is actually called presuppositional apologetics, okay? Um, presuppositional apologetics. When you first hear it, it might... You might say, okay, is it just assuming the Bible is just true and that's it? Um, I think there's a dimension of that, but I actually think there's much more. I actually, in my personal opinion, I think presuppositional apologetics, this approach I have in defending the Christian faith when people attack Christianity or when people ask for proof, I actually think for me, this is the one that's most biblically faithful. And at the same time, I actually think is one of the most intellectually rigorous way of defending the Christian faith. And also one that even for someone as young as my little kids, um, I'm also teaching them this, that I think is accessible for no matter where you are at um, in your life, whether you're a little kid um, with the truth that Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. And also even for those, at least for myself, I grew the most in presuppositional apologetics um, or the growth spurt that began was actually when I was in secular um, school. Uh, studying really political philosophy at UCLA. That's when I felt where I was able to really apply presuppositional apologetics um, in a way that I saw, wow, this is actually really amazing to see the refutation of secular philosophy and ethics. But I want to ask for you guys for your patience uh, as we go over this, okay? So last week we went over uh, part one was the introduction. We went over uh, what does the Bible, does the Bible talk about apologetics? We saw that while if you do a BibleGateway.com search, you will not, if you type in apologetics, you might not find a verse, but it's, I think the concept is there, especially when we know apologetics from the Greek word apologia, which is the, the word defense, giving a rational defense, usually in the context of a legal part. But Paul uses that and others use that to say, no, this is when you're non-believers, this is what you're engaged with, okay? So I sent that out last week and I also went over why we go over apologetics. Uh, why do we do apologetics? I've given five reasons why we do that. It's not just only answering non-believers, but I think a lot of times the ones that benefit the most practically are actually Christians. And that's actually legitimate too. We saw from the book of Acts, things of that nature. So today I'm actually, um, t this uh, t uh, the next three weeks, I'm actually laying the foundation for the way I'm, I'm doing this. So if it seems for you that, hey Jimmy, why is it this week? Today I'm going to go over religious neutrality. Okay, if you're taking notes, religious neutrality. And then next week we're going to go over what is the Bible says about unbelief. And then the week after that, I'm going to look at also even what is the proper relationship of faith and reason. Okay, there's different models. Some people think they conflict. Some think faith rests on the foundation of reason. Some think reason rests on the foundation of faith. Um, what is it? Okay, so you, if you're wondering why is it we're going over all these three things, um, I actually think those lay the foundation for what later on when we come to the part of critiquing non-Christian worldviews and answering the critics, I actually think it becomes devastating. Um, some of you guys, have you guys been following the news in Ukraine? I'm just curious because uh, I have an analogy of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Any of you guys follow the news in Ukraine going on here? How many of you guys were actually amazed that Ukraine have not necessarily um, been taken all over by Russia in just three or four days? I, I know I have been, okay? Some of you guys perhaps seen in the news that there's many reasons for that. There's multiple, there's, it's not monocausal. I think there's many reasons. Um, one of the reasons is actually because this time, unlike in 2013 and 2014, the attack. Hey girls, could you guys quiet down? We're just recording all these little chatter, okay? Um, thank you guys so much. Um, part of the reason is because th this time they've been given a certain weapons platform that's called the Javelin. So you guys ever, anyone have read about that? The Javelin missile system? Now, to back up a little bit, this, this is a military analogy. I'm having a point with this apologetics thing. Oh, I see Mandy's husband, Nate, giving a thumbs up, okay? 
Um, he's an army career guy, okay? Um, now, I'm, you know, um, I, the first time I saw a javelin, um, I never saw it fired in training. Uh, they were so expensive, at least when we were in, at, um, in 2003. I remember our unit only had like 11 going into Iraq. And I remember um, the, the platoon, the heavy weapons platoon that had the javelins, they were telling me that it was so expensive. Um, you know, all the guys only fire like two or three shots. This was OG 2003. And they were just telling me like how expensive it is. It's even worth more than a house in, you know, in, in even LA at that time. I think it was like 1.3 or, or 900,000 or whatever it is, you know. I remember it was so expensive that the first time I saw it actually fired was in Iraq. I thought it actually missed because the Javelin missile, when it was fired, it has this strange trajectory, at least for me when I saw this. This is based upon memory of 20 years ago. Um, I remember seeing it fired, and it looked like it went up, and it looked like totally missed. And I'm thinking, looking at this, like, wow, you fired? you know. And I'm looking at the guy because they were telling me, hey, this guy is actually one of the best Javelin shooter in the battalion of 1,000 Marines in our unit. And I was thinking, this guy totally missed until it came down and hit that vehicle and when i hit that vehicle then i was like whoa like this was not like hitting with an at4 which is the usual typical um anti-vehicle thing that we use that smaller charge when it hit it was like wow it was just so devastating it was just like it just destroyed everything um that's all to say that the javelin with the way it goes is it goes all the way up to hit the tank at the softest spot on on top okay now i think nate's husband could go into that more details he, he's a career man with that i'm bringing it up as to say the apologetics that i use if it seems like two, three weeks, and uh, next week and the week after and all that, it's like, well, Jimmy, why are you going over so much the Bible to say a biblical view of unbelief, a biblical view of faith and reason, and also there's no re religious neutrality? I'm doing this it's not because I'm missing the point, but I'm actually bringing it up elevated towards God so that when it comes back down with the critique, it is so devastating that you're like, oh, okay, Jimmy was not missing. There's a point that's driven home. And so that the critique with this unbelieving, uh, unbelieving worldview becomes so destructive that you see there's a point. But please be patient with me. Just like when I first saw the javelin guy shooting, I remember looking at Billingsley, this, this friend of mine, like Billingsley. And I was looking, I was like, did you, everyone brags you're the best one, but I can't believe you missed until I finally saw. And I was so impatient. That was only a few seconds. Right, and then finally, saw I said, "Oh, whoa, okay, there was a point." So I'm bringing that an analogy. Please be very patient with me. There's actually a point that the more biblical we are, we're going to see the contrast is so strong that when we finally bring the critique, it is so devastating. Um, it is so amazing to me, at least when I first discovered it. It just totally changed the way I saw how we approach every area of scholarship, and actually, it actually boosted my confidence. And actually, I could also tell someone to say, "Oh, I have no shame to say Jesus loves me." This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Okay? So, with that, let us look at point... So, to lay that foundation, to have the javelin missile, so to speak, going up. And though it seems like it's missing, wait, you're not answering. Skeptic is we laid this first foundation of having go up is the, before it comes back down with devastating firepower, is that there is no religious neutrality. Okay? Say this after me. There is no religious neutrality. Okay? Rebecca, Abigail, Hannah, you guys want to say this out loud with me again? There is no... Religious neutrality, okay? So this is going to shape the kind of apologetics I have. In, in actually, when we engage in apologetics, a lot of times people see apologetics as with a non-believer. So, okay, the guy is neutral, I'm neutral too, and I'm going to just give a bunch of evidence and then we critique it. But I actually think the way I pursue apologetics is a little bit different because I actually believe there's no one could actually be truly neutral. So if you're uh, taking notes tonight, we're going to actually be looking at four points Okay, four points to establish that there is no neutrality um, because that's going to have implication for how we approach uh, apologetics. Okay, let me say this again. Um, let me say uh, there is no neutrality. Um, okay, so these are the four points. Okay, so we're going to see four truths that shows that facts, when it comes to facts and also how man or woman thinks and activities, there's no neutrality. When it comes to the things of God. And of course, it will shape how we do apologetics, okay? Um, this will shape, because of this is true, next week and uh, the following week, we're going to see what the Bible has to say first of unbelief and the relationship of faith and reason before we come down to look at what is worldview with the devastating destruction when we look at the um, building blocks of what worldview is made out of, okay? So these are our four points for tonight. Uh, point number one, we're going to see characteristics of religious neutrality. Point number one, we're going to see characteristics of religious neutrality. Point number one is characteristics of religious neutrality. 
Point number two, we're going to see biblical doctrines does not allow for religious neutrality. Biblical doctrines does not allow for religious neutrality. Okay? Biblical doctrines does not allow for religious neutrality. Okay? Point number three, religious neutrality is unethical. Religious neutrality is unethical in a biblical worldview. Okay, you can just write religious neutrality is unethical just for time, but I'm trying to drive that. If you hold to a biblical worldview, it's unethical, okay? Religious neutrality is unethical in a biblical worldview, okay? And point number four, religious neutrality is philosophically impossible. Religious neutrality is philosophically impossible, okay? Uh, religious neutrality is philosophically impossible. Let me repeat again these four points. Point number one is characteristics of religious neutrality. Characteristics of religious neutrality. Point number two is biblical doctrines does not allow for religious neutrality. Biblical doctrines does not allow for religious neutrality. Biblical doctrines does not allow for religious neutrality. Point number three, religious neutrality is unethical. Okay? Religious neutrality is unethical um, in a biblical worldview. Okay? And then point number four, religious neutrality is philosophically impossible. Religious neutrality is philosophically impossible. Okay? And by the way, I want to talk about the application of this. If it is really true there's no religious neutrality, how we approach defending the Christian faith will be very different. We could, would not be even ashamed to say, hey, I'm going to still hold to my Bible. But it's actually going to be, I think, it's going to have a strong contrast. That the burden of proof is not just only one way with us Christian, That the other person also have a burden of proof also as well of how they're evaluating the criteria of evidence, not to mention the evidence themselves, okay? So this is going to shape how I engage in apologetics, okay? So in light of this, um, we're going to first and foremost look at the characteristics, point number one, of religious neutrality, okay? I'm going to define what I mean by religious neutrality is this. By neutrality, I take this to mean that this is a position where there's there's no antithesis, against something where there's someone is not antithetical against something okay antithetical mean you know being against something okay i see neutrality is is a position where you're not for or against something um but specifically in, in my notes i say um this is a position neutrality is a position where it's not antithetical against something okay it's there's no antithesis okay um and when it comes to religious neutrality, what I mean by that is specifically religious neutrality. What I mean by that is a position where one is not against the Christian God. Okay, just to narr- define it more narrowly, where um, you're you're not antithetical against a Christian God. Okay, I think in terms of apologetics, I actually think we should have a no neutrality principle. I really do think there's a no-neutrality principle. Now, I know there's going to be a lot of questions like, wait, how could you be not neutral? And also, how could you be reasonable? And all that stuff. This is where the follow-up, all that follows. Um, okay, I feel like sometimes apologetics and teaching apologetics is almost like building um, like an international space station. I have to fly in one week, once a week, just different parts, lay the foundation down before we have the whole platform as a weapon that brings the devastating crew. A destruction to non-believing worldview. Okay, so here we see with no neutrality principle. What what is the no neutrality principle that Christians, as apologists or defending the faith, we should not be neutral? I'm going to quote from a philosopher named James Anderson. Okay, James Anderson. I think some of you guys might be familiar. Um, he's a philosopher and a theologian. Okay, uh, I think he was trained in the University of Edinburgh. Not necessarily a bad school. Actually, it's a pretty good school for philosophy. Okay. Um, and he currently teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, so this is what he says about the no-neutrality principle, and I'm quoting here now from um, an, an article he wrote in honor of John Frame. Okay? Um, he says this, Every single person exhibits some religious bias, the a- atheist no less than the Christian, the Muslim, and the Hindu. Since religious neutrality is impossible in principle, it's misguided to speak and act as though it was possible or even preferable, okay? He's making this point to say that, in principle, we are, cannot even be consistently neutral when it comes to the things religion. Um, in philosophy, religion, 
is defined as issue of ultimate commitment. What do you believe ultimate reality is? Is there a God? Not necessarily only there's a God, but I think in philosophy it's more than that. It's because there's some religion, like Buddhism, you would say it's religious, but that might not necessarily have a, a God in there, right? So it's there, at least right now, in terms of the definition, especially in light of a guy named Paul Tillich influence, it's defined as ultimate commitment. Just to capture, it's just not just only Christianity, all that. So in light of ultimate commitments, no one can be neutral about things. Everyone have a certain view about reality. What is reality like? What is your obligation to that reality? Or if there is an obligation, etc. So in light of all this, um, there's no neutrality in principle. Even just hypothetically thinking, if that's the case, how could it be an actuality? We could even be neutral. Now let me say this real quick. I do think there could be a possibility of some things being neutral. Okay, There's some areas in life you could be neutral about certain things. Um, but it does not mean, but when it comes to the ultimate things, with the things of God, I think there's no neutrality. Let me give you an example of things I think that could be possibly neutral. Um, whether, you know when you tie your shoe? Um, who here ties left over right? And who here ties your shoe right over left? And who here has a really strong opinion about that? I don't even know whether I tie left over right. I could be neutral about something that's trivial. Does that make sense? Um, there's some things we could be neutral over, but when it comes to the ultimate reality of everything, right, of, of ultimate commitments, there is no neutrality in that regards. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, this is what Mrs. Burton says with preferences, right? Um, I don't get upset if my daughters want, if, let's just say I take them to get ice cream, right? If I say whatever scoop you have in 31 Baskin Robbins, I'm, I'm not going to be like upset. There's, you know, I could be neutral about how they feel about certain <clears throat> things. But when it comes to things of strong ultimate commitments, um, I think there's no, and actually even of what is ultimately realities consists of, I think there's not a possibility of neutrality, okay? When it comes to the things of God, there's no neutrality. Um, so I'm not a globalist in the sense of saying there's no neutrality over anything, okay? But I do think that with certain things, um, there cannot be neutrality. So let's look at uh, the characteristics of this. How is that expressed? No one usually go around and say, hey guys, I'm neutral. Um, or I have religious neutrality. I think sometimes the best way to think about it is look at what people say that shows the assumption of the possibility of neutrality. Um, for instance, someone could say, you know what, I'm not taking sides for or against religion. You guys hear that? Uh, I'm not taking sides for or against religion in general or a specific religion, okay? Another way it manifests, secondly, is people could say they're neutral um, concerning maybe certain issues that we believe or people believe God has spoken about, okay? Where they say, well, I, I think that's neutral. Um, I don't, or maybe even um, sometimes I think the ones that usually exp try to sh make themselves look the most neutral is agnostics, okay? Agnostics would say, oh, I don't know if there's a God. There might be a God, but I haven't seen evidence for it. But I'm open to hear that, okay? Um, where it sounds neutral, but I actually think if the Christian God is real, there's already problems. It, it's you're already saying the Christian God is negated. That, for instance, in Romans one, this against one eighteen, Romans one eighteen, that says God has revealed Himself very clearly. Okay, again, I'm already jumping the gun a little bit, but I'm trying to show you how sometimes people express um, their belief of religious neutrality with certain statements that presupposes or assumes new, religious neutrality. Okay, or they say things like. God is not relevant at all in certain spheres, okay? For instance, um, you know, maybe there is a God, but I think God is irrelevant in this sphere called politics or in this sphere called um, science, okay? Then in that area, people could be religiously neutral, okay? Where they see certain sphere. For instance, as an example, um, they could say, you know what? Um, does the Bible really have any, any implications for any area of geography? I don't think so, Jimmy or psychology, or mathematics, or economics, or man's relationship to the earth in ec uh, ecology, okay? By the way, every one of these things I listed when I sent out the email out tonight um, of the outlines, um, each one of this sphere, there's actually Christian scholars that have written a Christian worldview of the various one, okay? Of geography, okay? Of psychology, usually with um, Jay Adams. Some of you guys might be familiar with the area of biblical counseling, okay? Uh, with mathematics. By the way, there's a Christian apologist named Vern Poitos, okay, who's actually teaches at the school Mandy goes to. This guy was actually a, a, a child prodigy. 
a very young age. Um, I believe he went to, oh man, don't quote me. I always mix it up. He either went to Harvard first or Caltech. You could Google real quick his name. Um, but nevertheless, he has a mathematical background. He's even even written about how redeeming mathematics, how even mathematical um, structures actually is a powerful argument for the existence of God and presuppose God, okay? Um, economics, okay? Uh, and Christian economist that I really do enjoy, um, I do appreciate him a lot, is actually Gary North um, with Christian economics. He's been very helpful when I was an undergrad as a political science student, just even with a biblical view of economics, okay? Let me caveat that. I don't necessarily agree with him in every area, but in certainly the area of economics, I appreciate how much depth he's thought about that. And I do think there's areas to grow beyond what he's taught. But certainly, I, I think um, Papa Gary, as I call him, is so important. Um, he's just recently passed away. Um, okay. Um, and man's relations to the earth. Okay. Um, there's also um, Francis Schaeffer, if you guys know him. He's written even a biblical view of the responsibility to the, uh, that got to, towards God in being stewards of the environment. Okay. So these are the characteristics people would say. Okay. So let's go to... Um, in light of this, I want to argue for the next two, three, and four, point two, three, and four, why I think we should not be religiously neutral in our approach of apologetics or every area that we study, okay? Um, so point number two, biblical doctrine does not allow for religious neutrality. I, what I'm trying to say, point number two, is when we consider a certain area of what the Bible teaches, I actually think if the Bible teaches um, this is true, then there is actually no a possibility for us to be religiously neutral. That even if we say we're religiously neutral, we're actually now being antithetical to God with what he has to say, okay? So biblical doctrines, that uh, does, point number two, does not allow for religious neutrality, okay? Um, I think in light of the doctrine of creation, if God really created everything, that's one doctrine that shows it is impossible to be religiously neutral, okay? Let me, before I go further, I just want to clarify one thing. I hope there's not a confusion. Um, I actually think you have to make a distinction between what is called common ground and religious neutrality. Um, because um, I want to clarify this because some of us might in our mind be thinking, wait a minute, Jimmy, you say there's no religious neutrality. Creation shows that. But what does it mean? Like I, I go to, far, I take pharmacy uh, work and there's things that non-believer teach me that is true. And we have a common ground what we believe that this drug is helpful from certain tests or that we have common ground, for instance, um, with a non-believer. I could talk to a non-believer that he believes that he exists. And I believe he exists. Obviously, I'm communicating. Now, Jimmy, could you say there's no neutrality when there's common ground? I do make a distinction between common ground and neutrality. There's common ground in the sense that the non-believer and believer I could believe certain facts um, are true. But I actually think the common ground is not necessarily neutral. That the foundation for why he says this or that is I actually think is based upon Christianity is being true, is why this makes sense. But for the non-believer, if for instance, if they're, um, they don't believe there's a God, to talk about me, myself, and I almost becomes uh, impossible when I ask, okay, is everything ever stays the same? They're like, no, everything changes. Everything changes so much that they're not the same thing. Then becomes that philosophical problem of like, um, when you cross a river, did you cross that river once? Or, or you're crossing, if you go back again 10 minutes later, or is it a different river because it's all made out of things that are changing, okay? I'm bringing that up as to say that the issue is there is common ground, but the common ground is not neutral. I actually think um, it's a Christian worldview that makes sense of, of, of things, okay? Um, the non-believer and believer could sometimes have belief that coincide with one another, but I think it is not neutral when it says, how do we explain this? Do we need God to explain this? Or we say, no God is needed. And therefore, it's that ultimate foundation that is the issue that I think is not neutral. Does that make sense a little bit, what I'm trying to say? Okay. With that clarity, let's look at one doctrine is creation. Uh, my point of creation is everything in the world belongs to God. And it and is itself not neutral then. Creation itself is not neutral concerning the existence of God. Okay. Um, Turn with me real quick to Psalm 139, verse 8. Psalm 139, verse 8. Psalm 139, verse 8. When we turn there, Chris, could you be my happy, motivated reader to read Psalm 139, verse 8? The next one I want to ask to read the scripture will be our brother Eric. Again, Psalm 139, verse 8. 
Psalm 139 verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Amen. Okay. In Psalm 139, it lists some of the omni-attributes of God, including in verse 8, it shows us that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Whether even if you go to Sheol, which is actually considered the afterlife, um, in Hebrew sometimes it could be also be translated in certain places as hell, even, okay? Um, and behold, it says even God is there. But if you go to heaven, is God still there? Yes. Whether in heaven and on earth, as we'll see later on earth, He's present. And I think this goes against the belief that some people think, oh, there's cer certain areas that God is not present, or even God is not relevant. Babies, could you guys uh, stop the heavy whispering? Just because... Uh, even if others don't hear, the audio record. Is that okay? So here we see, okay, um, Psalm 139 verse 8 shows that all areas God is present. And I would even say is relevant um, as he holds all things together, okay? Turn with me also as well. Uh, turn with me also as well to Psalm 103. Psalms 103 verse 19. Uh, Brother Eric, if you could read that. And the next one I want to ask to read is Mandy. For now, Psalm 103, verse 19. Thank you so much for reading this. Notice here, I think it shows there's no neutrality in light of God's authority within His creation, right? That He's establishing His throne in the heavens. And by the way, His heaven is, according to Genesis 1 1, is God created the heaven and the earth, right? And you showed that His throne over heaven um, is that He's ruling over every sphere, okay? And if He rules over everything, whatever He says about creation, just by the fact that He's creator, means what? That we have to listen to His authoritative word. Of, of what is it about, okay? So if he says he's the creator of everything, and then someone comes along and says, hey, you know what? I don't think we could assume if this is created, and I also think we should be neutral, and I assume there's a creator behind all this, then that means I think it's no longer neutral because it goes against God. You're already negating the Christian God in terms of your epistemic move or, or the way you view knowledge uh, with things, okay? Um, let's look at another one. Uh, I want to look at this one in Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4. This is going to be a little bit longer, but if Mandy, if possible, would you be able to read um, all four verses? And I want to ask the next reader, if possible, to be the next uh, reader would be Mrs. Burton after this. Thank you. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. Okay. Amen. Thank you for reading this. Psalms 19 verses 1 to 4 here. I think it shows us that creation itself is not neutral in regards to the existence of God. Okay, um, Creation itself is not neutral. Notice here, when you look at um, this passage, there's terminologies used to convey that creation is communicating something to us, okay? Um, certainly, uh, uh, creation is communicating. Look at the language, okay? Look at the different verbs that it shows here, what God says, that nature is actually giving information, right? Uh, look at verses 1a, it says, The heavens tell, you guys see that? Where creation is telling something uh, to us. It's not just sitting there totally neutral, okay? And in verses once uh, the second half, the second line says, the expanse declares. Do you guys see the language of communication with the word tell and the word declares? Okay, look then with me in verses two. There's also two more verbs, right? Where it says, um, you see the part where it says, day to day, pour forth speech. The pouring forth is speech. Um, that's, um, again, indicating that there's information. There's uh, propositions. There's information being given, Okay. And then in verse 2b, the second line, it even says, reveals knowledge, okay? 
that night to night. Um, and notice the language, by the way, of um, Psalms 19 verses 1 and 4. There's what is called memorism going on here, where it's showing two extremes and everything in between. That day to day, creation is pouring forth out speech. That night to night, there is what? Communication telling us um, things. Okay, but what is these things that creation is communicating? What is it that is it that uh, creation is communicating? Then we pay, let's look at verses one again. What exactly are the contents that creation tells us? What truth does creation tells us? Does it tell us creation exists? I think so. But it tells more than just that creation exists. It tells us something about God. Let me say this again. It tells us something about God. Verses 1a says, the glory of God, right, is what the heaven tells us. It tells us not just only merely that God existed, but even that God is glorious, okay? One of his attributes is he's glorious. If you guys remember, even uh, last year when we went um, during the summer, the various attributes of God, right? Not only that, it also says the works of his hand. It tells us that God is creator. Everything was made by God. So creation actually tells us about something about God. So could we look at creation and says creation is mute in regards to the area of theology? No. If the Bible is true, then there's no what? If the doctrine of creation is true, and the Bible teaches that God did create us, and the Bible teaches that creation in Psalms 19 tells us about God, then we cannot say, okay, look at nature, and it is neutral whether God exists or not. But rather, it's the contrary. It shows us, not that is neutral, but positively that God is real and that God exists. Okay. By the way, this um, this revelation from God that creation testifies is inescapable according to verse 3. If you guys look with me in verses 3, it says, There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. So everywhere it is, God is showing His creation, right? By the way, if you close your eyes, even though it's very, when you see nothing, Actually, you're technically seeing what? Your eyelids. Even the very darkness of your eyelids testify that it's God's eyelids also as well. That it's still God's world, okay? Um, so I think in light of all this, you see it's very clear that it's not just saying, okay, maybe it teaches us, but it's it's somehow muted or somehow the volume is really low or somehow I just didn't, I just wasn't there when creation said this. No, verses 3 says it's inescapable. Okay. By the way, if you even if someone were to say, well, you know what, creation is not clear um, about that. That's already showing not neutrality. You're now going antithetical to what God in His Word says. So there is no neutrality with, with this going on here. Okay. I do want to make a point here because there, there's some that teach apologetics would say, okay, this is a verse to show you could do a certain kind of apologetics where it's two step, where you could just prove a generic God. Some kind of generic theism. Notice if you look at Psalm 19 verses 7 to 14, this is saying this God that is revealed in creation through his work is a God of the scriptures. Okay? That the God of the scripture that also speaks in not only his works of creation, but also in his word also as well. Okay? Verses 7 to 14. Okay? For the sake of time, um, I'm not going to turn here, but there's also another passage you can look at where God owns everything and he's involved. is in First. Uh, Chronicles 29 verse 11 okay but we'll go through this faster because I do want to leave some time for people in case they have questions okay let's go to another doctrine not only does the doctrine of creation shows there's no neutrality but within the contents of the Bible the Bible also teaches Ben what would you be able to mute um, there's a lot of back um, okay thank you so much okay so um, there's a lot of feedback sorry uh God, the second thing is the Bible teaches that God and Christ is a source of wisdom. Okay, that God and Christ is actually the source of wisdom. Now, this will later come down in a few weeks from now when we look at this. This is going to become a very devastating, powerful apologetics to say if we don't begin with God and uh, Christ is the, is the source of wisdom and everything, then how do you then explain the origins of the world? And I think that ends up whatever explanation you have, it's going to become almost like acid that destroys wisdom okay um it's going to be a powerful acidic solution that destroys everything of logic and everything else but for now we want to see that there's no neutrality that if the bible teaches that god and christ is a source of wisdom there's no neutrality every fact and every wisdom comes from and knowledge really the source of that is god okay um the bible teaches that christ is a source of wisdom turn with me to colossians 
chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. I think I asked Mrs. Burton to read. Is that correct? Or did you already read? I don't remember. Okay, thank you. The next reader I want to ask to read, if possible, would be um, Hui afterward, okay? Again, Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. The Amplified really amplified the points with that. Um, notice in verses 3, right? Verses 3 teaches that it is in Christ, according to context in verses 2 earlier. It's actually Christ that's hidden all what treasuries of wisdom and knowledge. And why is Paul saying this? Is to say, hey, don't let anyone present a crafty argument to say, hey, wisdom does not come from God or from Christ, okay? That people could be autonomous, that is, the law unto themselves, no need for God, um, with that, uh, for for there to be wisdom, um, okay, and, and and knowledge, okay. Um, so I think Christ is a source of wisdom, and let's look at James one five. Let's turn real quick to James one five. Um, James one five. Hui, would you be able to read James one five? The next one I want to ask um, to be the next reader is going to be um, James afterward, okay. But James one five for now. Again, James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you, to him. Amen. I think you see two attributes of God here, that he's a source of wisdom and that he is generous. Or gracious, right? Um, so in looking at this, if we ask God for wisdom, obviously the source of wisdom is from God, okay? Um, so I think even, let's just say someone look at this and they disagree. Say, I don't believe in the Bible at all. we got to be neutral. By even negating that, they're already no longer neutral. They're actually now antithetical to what God says about the source of wisdom. In other words, if you're beginning to see here that it's inevitable a clash of collisions of two different worldviews. Um, in light of the more details we go into what God's Word says, there's inevitable clashes that there can't be neutral. If there's any neutrality, it seems like it superficially until we get into the details, until we actually say, okay, how then do we live our life? Um, either you go by God's Word or you're not, and therefore you see very clearly that there's no neutrality, okay? Even in, in areas such as knowledge and wisdom, okay? Um, also, Christianity, the, the Bible teaches Christianity is exclusive. There's an exclusive entity of Christianity, okay? Um, John 14, 6. John 14, 6. Abigail, would you be... Uh, actually, I think I asked James to read John 14, 6. Would you be able to read John 14, 6? And then Abigail, you'll be next for later, okay? Yes, sir. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, thank you for reading that. Um, this is, shows Christianity is very exclusive, right? Uh, obviously, these are one of those passages that a lot of people could be very offended over, right? Um, and there's no neutrality with this. Either this is true or this is not, okay? Um... These are one of those passages in Scripture where I can't domesticate it. I can't neuter this. If I'm faithful to Scripture, it shows there's no neutrality. We have to accept this is true or not, okay? Acts 4.12. Abigail, would you be able to come be my happy, motivated reader to read me Acts 4.12? Okay. You want to read from your version, New King James? Okay. 
Acts 4.12, would you be able to come up and read? Four twelve. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, yeah, so we see there's no salvation in no one else, right? Other than with that. And the question was someone say, Well, I don't know if that's true. Then I was okay, um, do you believe this? Well, no. Well, there's no neutrality with this, right? Even to say, I'm not sure if this is true. You're not already uh, making that decision. Because why? Why is that? Because of Matthew 12.30, okay? I'll read this one. Matthew 12.30 makes it very clear. Um, there's no neutrality with regards to even Jesus, okay? The one who is not with me is against me, and the one who does not gather with me scatters, okay? Again, I cannot domesticate this. I cannot neuter Scripture. You see, Scripture is very exclusive so there's no neutrality in light of what the bible content teaches okay so if that's point number two there's no neutrality impossible neutrality because of biblical doctrines does not allow for religious neutrality i want to look at point number three uh another reason why religious neutrality is impossible um point three is religious neutrality is unethical in a biblical worldview religious neutrality is, is unethical the first the earlier part we've looked at just the content or the proposition and the truth claims of Scripture itself, why you see there's no religious neutrality. Now I'm going to make the point that when it comes to the Bible, what it teaches about even human or Christian obligation to talk about, to even try to pursue religious neutrality is now actually unethical, which provides now a second stream of reason why there's we should not pursue uh, religious neutrality, even when it comes to how we defend our faith, okay? Um, first and foremost, I want to say that man's purpose is what? What is the purpose of man? Um, if you guys are Christians, what is the purpose of being a Christian? Anyone? Glorify God. Yeah, amen. And to enjoy Him forever. Amen? Okay. And is that biblical or, is it, or are we saying this just because most of us kind of like, you know, guys that read the Westminster Confession chapter 1, right? Um, the reason why is because it's the Bible, okay? Um, if you guys could turn with me real quick to Colossians 3.17. Colossians 3.17, if you guys could turn to Colossians 3.17. Actually, uh, Kike, would you be able to read that for us? Colossians 3.17. Colossians 3.17, and the next one I want to ask to read again. Um, we'll be going back to Chris, okay, afterward. But Colossians 3.17 for now. Okay, Colossians 3.17, it says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, Amen. giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen. Okay, so whatever you do, whatever in words or deeds, right? We engage in apologetics or defense of the faith of our words. Do we just do it in neutral fashion? Or do we actually do it for the glory of God? It should be for the glory of God. Amen. When we study, right? Um, it is, one of the things I love being in our church is uh, some of you guys I've known for a long time. Right, I think the newest ones know me. Most of the guys knew, have known me for a while, and there's also guys that have known me when I was a kid. Um, I'll be very honest. As a kid, I was a dumb kid. I was kicked out of high school, obviously for behavioral problem, but also, you know, I was really low in the lower half when I graduated, and I became a Christian at 15. It actually changed the way I did school, like totally. I went from 1.6 GPA um, to a 3. Point something. I don't remember. But I'm not again. This is not about bragging or anything. It's just to say I actually think my whole view of everything changed once when I start seeing that the Bible is real, that God is real, that everything is God's green earth. That I finally saw the world in living color, out of my world of depression and sadness and everything else. Because I realized if this is God's world, I want to know what it's like and worship Him. Okay. So in saying that, that totally changed my life. Um, whatever you do, whatever you study for the glory of God, and you know what? If you read and study for the glory of God, it's like coffee. There's a lot of times where I do study, and man, I have to keep a limit. I need to try to go to sleep by 4 a.m. Because if I don't, man, when I see the sun rises, that next day I'm messed up, okay? But I'm trying to say is this, man, the world, when you study all this, it's for the glory of God, why we study all subjects and everything, okay? Let's turn to another one, 1 Corinthians 10.31. I like to, um, let's go to 1 Corinthians 10.31. I think I asked Hui, uh, no, uh, correction, Chris, to read that next verse, 1 Corinthians 10.31. 
Amen. Okay, I call this the McDonald's verse because when I was a young man, I used to eat this verse, and people were like, "Hey, Jimmy, it's gross. You eat McDonald's every single day, is you know?" Um, and I says, "No, no, I'm doing it for God's glory. I enjoy Him, right?" And if eating could be something that some of us could see as so trivial, we eat it to enjoy God and glorify Him. How much more in our defense of the faith? So if that's the case, there's no neutrality. We cannot go in about this in pursuit of matter. In fact, if we do that, it will actually be unethical also as well. We'll be disobeying God's clear command here of what to do. So um, if that is a choice between rebellion and obedience and enjoying Him, therefore there's no way we could pursue apologetics, okay? And actually, I think this would also shape the kind of apologetics we want to pursue. Um, I wish we could popularize one of the names for presuppositional apologetics. I wish we could call it doxological apologetics, right? Where we worship God, we see His glory in everything, that you need God to even make sense of everything. And we say, Amen and Amen. And we do this with sheer joy, right? Not out of fear, but out of like, man, God is great. And we worship Him, right? Of all that we do, okay? And then let's go to point number four. This is the last point. Um, I would even say, Religious neutrality is philosophically impossible also as well, okay? Religious, so I begin, if you see point number one, we've looked at the characteristics of religious neutrality, see how, you know, people express that. We've looked at one reason, and point two is because it goes against Bible contents or biblical doctrines. And we looked at point number three, that if God calls us to be worship Him and glorify Him in everything, to approach this endeavor of defending a faith intellectual, we become intellectually schizophrenic, where we say, yeah, you know, I'm going to assume that God doesn't exist, but then, yeah, I still love God and, and, and study everything for God's glory. Rather than being intellectually bipolar, we hold on and say there's no neutrality, okay? Which, now we go to the fourth point. Religious neutrality is philosophically impossible. One of the reasons why it feels, uh, religious neutrality is uh, impossible is because people do not are not presuppositionally free. That is, when you look at the world, people have certain belief systems that they assume ahead of time. Um, certain belief system. For example, if someone says, okay, uh, I'm going to assume God didn't have anything to do with creation. And I'll say, oh, that's interesting. What do you think reality is like? Well, reality exists. It's like, huh, it's interesting. You believe reality exists instead of not exists. And they'll say things like, well, yeah, why not, why not everybody believes that? I say, really? Everyone believes that? Because there's a certain belief system that says the physical creation, anything that's physical is actually Maya, the doctrine of Maya in Hinduism, where it says everything is an illusion, right? So it's like, huh. And they're like, okay, well, yeah. Then notice you, no one could be neutral with that, okay? Um, another example, usually the way I think to unmask neutrality is I would often ask, okay, if, if God doesn't exist, then what does exist? Okay, what are the things that exist? And just noticing that people have presuppositions or assumptions, okay? Um, people have all kinds of belief systems, okay? Some of them are true. Some of them are true. But the question is, um, in that web of beliefs, what provides the justification for our, all that, okay? And another thing is neutrality is anti-theistic. Also, when it comes to religion, okay? When someone says he's neutral towards God's existence or Christianity, he himself has antitheistic or non-Christian assumption already, okay? It is neutral. It, like, look at a fact, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. I used to, when I used to teach this for community college and evangelism, you know, ministry of UCLA, I remember people would often say there could be neutrality if 2 plus 2 equals 4. But remember how I said, don't confuse common ground with neutrality. We could have common ground, but the ground is a Christian worldview, right? It's not the Mayan worldview where it says nothing exists, right? Definitely, that, that's not that. So it must be a Christian worldview. But then now, I think from the last few, since 2020, we even see 2 plus 2 is not even a given, right? Um, I remember even arguing with someone that was really smart um, a few uh, in 2020 where this person was trying to say 2 plus 2 does not equal 4. And I'm scratching my head because the argument was at first it's racist, then it became even much more complex with even the metaphysics of number. And I'm just thinking, wow, I've never had that. Usually people talk about 2 plus 2 equals 4 as an argument against the kind of apologetics I have, which shows there's no neutrality, okay? Um, because even at 2 plus 2 equals 4, I assume it has something to do with reflecting God's logic and nature that He ascribes into this world to, to go by that. And also there's a certain assumption of the nature, the abstract nature of numberedness itself, okay? 
Um, we'll talk about more of that later when we get to empiricism in our study, where people say, hey, we know things, we don't need God, because everything we know is all physical, is, is physical determinism or physicalism or even naturalism or even empiricism, that all you see, I know 2 plus 2 equals 4, because hello, look right here, 4, or did you ever see the number 4? Um, but we'll talk about how to refute that later on, because those are symbols, or those are even manifestation, but not the fourness itself, okay, but that's, we'll get there when we get there. And another analogy I would also even say is this. There's some things even in life that's not religious that is not neutral, given the nature of how critical it is, right? Um, of how even critical that is, okay? I'll just give this an analogy. You, you guys perhaps hear the story of, um, what, what you perhaps take a philosophy class where people bring up the issues like, if someone comes to you and you're putting, you have, you're holding a bunch in World War II, holding a bunch of Jews, hiding in your basement, and someone knocks on your door, the Nazi says, okay, you know what? Um, are there any Jews in underneath your um, people were looking for underneath your basement or in your house? If you say you're neutral, so, uh, I don't know. Um, do you think that would cause a problem? They'll be like, hey, what do you mean you don't know, right? If you say yes, are you neutral towards them? That becomes a problem, right? If you say no, are you neutral towards them? No, you're helping them. So there's certain things that are... Um, that are impossible. And by the way, even another thing is why neutrality is impossible is neutrality itself, so-called, is not neutral when it comes to God. And the simplest way to make something, you guys realize with anything in philosophy, anything becomes not neutral very quickly by simply arguing against it. Does that make sense? Uh, by simply arguing against it. I'm giving the example of the war right now, right? Um, there's certain countries that's in Europe, they say, hey, we want to be neutral. Um, some certain countries in the beginning, like Germany and also Hungary. And then Ukraine is like, wait, how could you be neutral? We're next to your neighbor. And then they're like, okay, well, well, we'll give you some things. And then suddenly the Russians are saying, wait, 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 wait a minute. You're no longer neutral, right? I'm bringing that as an example is this. Do, the, by very even debating about neutrality, it's not even neutral already. It's already, there's already antithetical towards God. So I think it's philosophically self-refuting when it comes to that. But even trivial beliefs becomes not neutral once you even question the neutrality of it. It just needs one person to have a statement um, with that. So I would even say that neutrality philosophically itself is not neutral, even more so in light of the specific claims within the Bible of what God says about creation, of who He is, and also His ethical requirement for all of us to glorify Him, and even itself philosophically is a problem. Now, why is this important for apologetics? I'm going to begin with my belief in God, and then they're going to begin with that, but it's not going to be a standoff where we just point to each other, hey, you have presupposition. Now we go, the apologetics that I'm engaged is, let's go deep down and say, in your ultimate foundation, are you resting on sinking sand? A belief that if your worldview, if your view of the world is true, is it going to be destructive, or is it going to be the sure foundation that Christ is our solid rock? And as we go over the next few weeks, I also want to show that unbelief a lot of time is sometimes in sinking sand where it destroys itself, everything, everything else, a building you try to have, you try to build a reason, science, and also it sinks. Or sometimes it's so unfounded, it's like feet planted firmly midair with no foundation for it's arbitrary. Okay, so that's where we're going to go with this, but this lays the foundation. Okay, let me stop here at this point.